At the table, Jared Rizzi. I'm here with Aki Peretz, who's a former CIA counterterrorism analyst. He is the author of, this is now back in 2012, Find, Fix, and Finish, which basically outlines, Find, Fix, Finish outlines 9-11 to essentially Osama bin Laden and the destruction of Al-Qaeda. And then in the last few days, weeks, months, really the the evolution of the Trump era, Aki, I have been thinking a lot and wanting to talk to you a lot about the way in which this administration has taken that progress and what it has done with it. First of all, thank you for spending some time with me at the table, at your table here at your home uh, in, in Maryland. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, thanks for coming over. Yeah. I'm really glad that we were able to do this and, and very appreciative of your time. Let's Let's start with where we were when you wrote that in election year 2012 and where we've come in the last let, let's go everywhere up till uh the last couple of uh days with this iran story how has the trump administration taken the progress that the united states intelligence community made and what has it done with it well the interesting thing is that when you look at the grand sort of uh, sweep of what has actually occurred in uh, the fight against al-Qaeda, a fight against ISIS and terrorism in general, um, you see a lot of successes, honestly. You have the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was the head of ISIS. He was a person who uh, showed himself to be a really a terrible, monstrous person running a death cult uh, in the Middle East, and you saw that he was able to send, he and his, his group was able to send lots of people throughout Europe, North Africa, Middle East, Asia, and in North America to do really terrible, terrible activities. So the fact that, that he is taken off the battlefield is a good thing. Uh, but if you look at sort of the grand sweep of things, what has the Trump administration really done uh, to bring these, con these, these, these conflicts to a conclusion? And so what we've seen actually in the last couple of days is that it looks like with the death of uh, Quds Force, Qasem Soleimani, the general Qasem Soleimani, is that m perhaps in death, Soleimani has achieved what the Iranians could not do when he was living, which is A, convince the Iraqis to formally get rid of the American presence in Iraq. You have, uh, and NATO just uh, announced this, I believe this morning or several hours ago, that uh, they are suspending their counter-ISIS uh, efforts. If you remember, we actually undermined uh, our, some of our Syrian Kurdish allies, that was what, two, only two months ago, eight, several weeks ago, allowing ISIS and other nefarious organizations to sort of come back and, and sort of fill that void. And we've seen other organizations sort of take, take apart, uh, to come to the forefront, including there's a proxy group that is backed by the Turks, and they are doing all kinds of terrible things in northern Syria against Kurds, against uh, other people who live in the area. It's not just Kurds who live in the area. Um, and so we see... Um, a, a shrinking of the efforts of the United States to combat these organizations and absent a real effort to sort of change the dynamic, I don't see how, uh, uh, how people are or, or how the United States is really going to fight organizations like ISIS, Al-Qaeda in a meaningful way if we don't have boots on the ground. Well, the president is, is sending additional, it looks like about 3,000 more troops. I'm sure that's an early number that's going to be uh, added to as time progresses. Of course, we could talk about 
the domestic politics of this, the president has been on both sides of getting out of wars in the Middle East. But you you mentioned the Iraqi parliament and voting to eliminate foreign troops. I remember having conversations with you during the Obama administration, whether it was on ISIS or whether it was on Syria or whatever the question was. And it was clear that what we were talking about was happening alongside an administration strategy that whether you agreed or disagreed with it, it existed, it was knowable, and it was mostly consistent, I think, throughout the Obama years. I don't feel like, and I would be interested to your your analysis here, I don't feel like you mentioned the uh, situation with Turkey. It doesn't seem to me as if there's as clear a strategy that is being implemented during the Trump administration. I sincerely doubt there is a strategy of any consequence uh, occurring right now, and I think that most most uh, foreign policy specialists will likely uh, agree with that. Uh, and and I, I suggest you talk to a number of Trump people to say that there is a Trump strategy in the Middle East against uh, terrorist organizations, etc. Now, that said, there are efforts by uh, the DOD, by CIA, by other organizations to combat these threats uh, in their own way, but absent leadership on these issues, and absent a strategy to achieve certain goals, I'm not sure where it's going to go. Now, obviously, defeating uh, a terrorist organization takes forever. Now, remember that al-Qaeda has been around since uh, 1988, 89, and ISIS has uh, sort of—it's a very long story, but but ISIS has sort of come out of, of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was its own thing, um, and they're not going anywhere. There are thousands of people who still uh, believe in the organization. We, If we are not willing to— handle the problems that are occurring right now in a clear and consistent manner with an actual long-term strategy, we'll be playing whack-a-mole for years to come. That seems to be, unfortunately, where we've landed, whether you talk about the Bush administration, the Obama administration, or the Trump administration. So I, I suppose the fairest way to look at this, and I have very little inclination to be as fair as that, but uh, the fairest way to look at it would be, I mean, certainly time time will be the judge of whether or not there is something there that's that's workable, that's that's going to improve. Right now, I don't see that because I and, and here's let's talk specifically about the last few days. From an intelligence point of view, and again, I'm thinking as your background as a former uh, analyst with the CIA, especially in counterterrorism, the president was, according to what we've seen from Pompeo and others who have been talking about this in the last few days, presented with information on a credible threat that was imminent. This is, of course, the administration uh, line which is being taken credulously by most people. Let me start by saying or asking you, rather, should we be credulous when it comes to these assertions? Because from the Bush administration, during the Obama administration as well, and especially during the Trump administration, there is a real dearth of credibility when it comes to this is happening and, it, and it's, and it's uh, preemptively going to save American lives. Well, the, the thing that I think a lot of people don't quite realize is that the, a fundamental question, what is intelligence? And Basically, it is actionable, intel- actionable information that decision makers can use to make better decisions. What they do with it is that really up to them. They're the decision makers. This is the, but this one gives you the tools to make the best decisions one can. And so 
if you go around undermining your intelligence community writ large, which the Trump administration has 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 used all kinds of strange euphemisms to describe agency people, FBI uh, uh, officers, etc., it is difficult to take them seriously when there is supposedly an imminent, credible threat on the horizon. Politico just came out and saying that Pompeo was uh, has been pushing for killing Soleimani for months now, and uh, this might have been uh, an opportunity to actually get him. Now, whether he it was a credible, imminent threat to uh, kill hundreds of lives, I think Pompeo said something like along the lines of uh, hundreds of lives have been saved, up to thousands of lives have been saved, and I know that the State Department did an anonymous high-ranking briefing that said specifically hundreds of lives have been set, saved. Now, that's actually quite interesting. If you look at how, what does hundreds of lives, hundreds of American lives mean? Uh, does that mean that the, uh, the Quds Force were thinking of blowing up a plane, uh, a full wide-body passenger jet, 240, 300 people on it, uh, full of American citizens? Is it a Marine Corps barracks in Beirut in the early 80s kind of situation? Um, 241 Marines died, um, and dozens of uh, French uh, officers as well died. Um, is it something like that? Now that those are those things are quite those things are quite uh, uh, serious terrorist attacks that a lot of organizations have never really been able to pull off. Now, if we to believe on the 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 upper scale of things, which I think Pompeo said something, something along the lines of up to thousands of people, have, uh, that's a 9/11 st- uh, style attack. And if if uh, uh, if Iran had a 9/11 style attack on Americans. Uh, they killed thousands of Americans. We would grind that country into dust. Uh, the Iranian government and the Iranian regime knows that the, the, you can only go so far without tur- uh, without America turning into a monster and 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 wrecking everything. Uh, and we would do that. So I would be careful about what are are believing or assessing what actually is the truth. And so what I suggest is Congress actually has to have uh, open hearings about this imminent threat uh, that Iran poses, because obviously Iran is a malign regime, but what imminent threat to Americans and uh, American interests are there out there? And we just don't know because what the government does, and I'm not only the Trump folks, but... Uh, Bush and Obama and others have always said that this this information is classified. We can't give you this information, but you have to trust us. Uh, this administration has, in my view, has burned through the trust of the American people. And so uh, we need to see a little bit more information. Of course, this administration has also been extremely cooperative with Congress. So I assume that... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very, very, very cooperative with Congress, as we've seen. So I assume that those hearings will be extremely uh, helpful if they if they ever do happen. Let me let's talk about the choice that the president made. You mentioned that that perhaps Pompeo wanted uh, Soleimani dead for for some time, and maybe that was an influence. We've seen some reporting over the last few days that DOD presented the commander in chief with a slate of options, and that this was the this was the the sixty dollar hamburger of the menu. It was only there to justify other things. It was if you're a Sorkin fan, it was the disproportionate response to kind of lean the president toward a proportionate response. It was not there to be picked. Now again, I wonder about the level of credulousness that we should put on 
DOD sources that might be looking to maybe clean their hands of this, like, for example, the uh, DOD chief of staff who just resigned, uh, who's, you know, maybe, maybe trying to get out ahead of, uh, of the beat, beat the traffic. Uh, but I, I wonder about this in terms of you mentioned people don't always think about intelligence. If you could talk about the way intelligence and, and the way in which those menu of options would be presented to the decision maker and why a choice like uh, taking Soleimani out would even be on that menu. A smart person always thinks about if you want to get somebody to do something, you give them two, you, let's say you give them three options and two of them are, one of them is do nothing. Nobody likes to do nothing. One is so out there that you don't, you don't even consider it. And so there's a middle path. So uh, the, the plan B or the plan C. Uh, you're not really supposed to take the crazy path. Uh, so if, let's say, the DOD had said, look, we can invade Iran and we can do this, blah, 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 or we could take these much lesser um, stances, we're going to do that. And I think that's probably, and uh, this is speculation on my part, but I think that's actually what happened after the uh, the Iranian or pres- presumed Iranian attacks on Saudi oil fields uh, some time ago, which was we weren't going to try to kill any Iranians within Iran or do something really terrible, but we're going to do some secret cyber sabotage, uh, which it hasn't been quite clear exactly what happened. But we don't even know the identity of the American contractor, for example, that the president has cited as the, the straw that broke the back uh, the, and, and kind of pushed him into this action here. That's right. We don't know the, the action. We don't know what that really means. I mean, I want to actually say that this has nothing to do with Iran, but three Americans were killed yesterday in Kenya in an Ashabab attack. Uh, those people, their their blood is as red as the contractor who lost his life or her life in Iraq the other day. Uh, so, I would be I I would I would I'd be surprised if there aren't more uh, efforts against, let's say, an Ashabab, which is not has nothing to do with Iran. Um, uh, if we are just using American lives as the as the gold standard or the chips that we're using to to make decisions. But we know you and I both know that that is not how. In a political realm, this operates. People, it's regime-based. This this president, for example, has la- uh, you know washed praise over Kim Jong Un, who's got uh, you know plenty of deaths. Some America, I mean, we could talk about the the warm beer family or whatever we want to talk about there. Um, but th- there has been, let's say, at best, an ad hoc <laughs> strategy when it comes to dealing with uh, nuclear or potential nuclear. Uh, nations around the world, the Iranians represent a particularly thorny problem and have for some time. One of the things that has come out in the last few days is that they are no longer going to abide by anything from the 2015 JCPOA, the the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The president, uh, this president had already tried to pull out of as much of that as possible in his kind of tilting at the the windmill of undoing most of the Obama presidency. How much of that, A, is a surprise at this point, and B, is meaningful, given that some of this had already been undone? What What is Iran saying that it's going to do now that it wasn't doing a week ago? Iran has been dealing with some serious domestic crises in general, uh, partially to do with the sanctions, but also partially to do with the fact that it's a theocratic regime and, and it treats people very poorly. And, and a lot of Iranians in major cities aren't going to take it anymore. And so the Iranians have been 
pretty aggressive about putting down these protests, killing hundreds of people. And, and you can read about this in the press. And I think this, this, has, this, this has been kind of overlooked in all of this. What Iran has been able to do is in a, you know, in every crisis there is opportunity. They have been able to squelch that narrative that, uh, that we are a bad, poorly functioning organ- uh, country that does not have the average Iranian's uh, be- uh, welfare at stake and turn that around saying that they can go back to their strength of their narrative, which is the United States is the great Satan that is doing these terrible things, and we are the only ones who can protect you and protect the revolution. And I think it's that's probably a very smart move on on uh, Tehran's part. Number two is how can we uh, impose costs on the United States without without causing the United States to overreact? And one of them is we're going to uh, uh, restart. I believe they're going to start restarting some of their centrifuges. As far as I understand, and I'm not a nuclear uh, scientist and I'm not a nuclear weapons um, uh, thought leader. Uh, if you will, but I think not knowing the phrase for it is really uh, kind of an indication for anyone listening to this. <laughs> Very much so, but they actually have not taken a hundred percent of the steps to uh, restart their nuclear program. Now, remember, this is not the nuclear weapons program because they have not begun enriching their uh, their uranium at this at the level that you need to do it. Also, they have not, as far as I understand, and according to the worldwide threat brief that came out. Uh, last year, they have not been able to uh, create a delivery mechanism system that would actually make sense to to hit targets, uh, what have you. That said, uh, Iran has to show that it is uh, going to avenge Soleimani and push back against the Americans, and they have to find the Goldilocks, the Goldilocks uh, uh, situation here. I mean, they have to they have to have find the Goldilocks answer, which is. Not too much, not too, not too, you know, not too hot, not too cold, but just right. And they're looking for that right now. Aki Peretz is joining me. He's a former CIA counterterrorism analyst. We're talking about, of course, Iran. And what you're describing is, is the Goldilocks option here is exactly what Trump, he, he picked the soup that was too hot. Uh, and, and what we're, of course, concerned about is that every time somebody takes the hot option, uh, it brings the average temperature in the pool just a little bit warmer. Um, I guess... When we talk about the options that Iran has to make Americans' life more difficult immediately, what aside, we, we talk a lot about in a casual way what Soleimani represented, what the, the, the Quds Force represented uh, from a president, by the way, who as recently as 2015 didn't know what the heck you know, the Quds were and, and, and couldn't have identified Soleimani if you had if you had pointed him out in a lineup. Uh, this is this is now something where we know that this is a, an organization within Iran that has a great amount of capacity to do things. What what does that middle option look like? What should people expect when they're thinking about how did this next few days pan out? Well, the interesting thing about uh, the Quds Force is the Quds Force is really part of the IRGC. Uh, the IRGC uh, is the Praetorian Guard, if you want to call it that, uh, that protects the revolution and the supreme leader. Uh, what people really don't talk about is that the IRGC internally controls anywhere between 15 and 30 percent of the economy. They control uh, construction, oil, transport, railways, hotels, um, huge pistachio farms, anything that you can actually generate money from. 
uh, they can do it. And the ironic part is that as we push these con- these these crushing sanctions on on Iran, people still need to build roads and s- people still need need to build buildings and and develop their oil sector and develop all kinds of other sectors internally. And the only group that can generate capital is the IRGC, uh, for the most part. So if you're a pistachio farmer in Iran, you're getting crushed by the market because you can't get your goods to market, you can't uh, get the, uh, the fertilizer, you can't get the tractors, et cetera, et cetera, uh, because you don't have capital. And you're, they're being, we're basically squeezing them for capital. What we think about uh, the IRGC Quds Force, which is their external wing, Quds, uh, by the way, Al Quds is the um, is the word for Jerusalem, so it's the quote unquote Jerusalem force. Uh, those are the ones who go and who, who have the the bureau, part of the bureaucracy that it goes out and does external activities. They're the ones who work with nefarious organizations like Hamas, Hezbollah. Uh, they're the ones who work with uh, the Houthis, uh, the Houthi rebels in Yemen. They're the ones who who legitimately brought in a lot of uh, weapons and projectiles that killed hundreds of Americans in Iraq over the last uh, over the last decade or so. So this is a, um, a nefarious organization, but it's still part of the bureaucracy. They're not doing it for their own sake, like a terrorist, gr- an independently minded terrorist group. They're doing it as a wing of a larger government bureaucracy. And people, ha- they have health insurance and they have dental insurance and they have vacation days and, and um, more, uh, I guess they don't have mortgages, but uh, they, they have apartments back home uh, in Tehran and other places. And if you don't, it, it, it's like, it's like people who complain that the CIA does terrible things abroad. Um, whether they, whether the CIA does or does not, people forget it's still part of the government. It's part of the government bureaucracy. They don't make choices unto themselves uh if you have a problem with what happened uh in pick your own country um and you you see a, a cia boogeyman fine but they're they are the executors of a strategy which comes from the white house congress and so forth for the united states of america um the quds force and uh the rgc are part of a government bureaucracy and if you don't like them absolutely they are a, a, a nefarious organization but they are working at behest of a much larger a much larger country. One that seems to have a clearer strategy moving forward, unfortunately, than the American side of this ledger. Let, let's talk about some of the people who have led, um, or are currently leading at least, the, the CIA. Uh, two years ago, almost two years ago, you were arguing against Gina Haspel to lead CIA. Um, she was, at the time... Oh, actually, actually uh, let me, let, can I just uh, qualify that? What I was arguing, this is in the Washington Post, is that the CIA should not get involved in the partisan food fight over Gina Haspel's nomination. This is not a, this is not a, uh, I'm not, I wasn't throwing stones at any individual at her nominate. I didn't, what I wanted to say was that the CIA as a nonpartisan government entity should not come down one way or another um, in a partisan food fight, which is a Senate nominate, Senate confirmation. Well, let me. That gets to the heart of the Trump era, though, because whether it's Pompeo, who was head of CIA and is now head of state, uh, Secretary of State, whether it's uh, Haspel, who's there, there has been a politicization of these both military forces, intelligence forces, 
let's talk about what Trump has done in that space. Earlier, you mentioned that there is he has been pretty aggressive in terms of being derogatory about the the uh, intelligence gathering, intelligence services. He doesn't seem to like any time there's a, an implication that there was uh, any any foreign interference in the election, although that's uh, not a question that anyone in the intelligence community would, would say is an open one. And yet we have these, these services that are political appointees, uh, w- with political appointees at the heads of them, uh, and career people like yourself who you know spend a lot of time working in the the uh, salt mine equivalent, there's a product that's being pr- presented. Is that product the question for you then, Aki? Is is that product better or worse in the Trump administration given what he has said about it and the people that he has put to produce it? So one of the things that the intelligence community prides itself, I know CIA prides itself on, is speaking truth to power. That's the goal, anyways. And so, no matter who's in charge, you want to say that this is what this is what the unvarnished truth is, or or what we perceive it to be. And uh, you, the decision maker, has to make the choice uh, what to do with it. But the funny thing about that that flip side is, is and and I, I want to also say that uh, the whole like, concept of speaking truth to power is is a is one that is that's in the Bible. It's in Chinese culture very much so. I mean, people speaking truth to power to the emperor. What people oftentimes forget is what happens after the person speaks truth to power is usually whoever whoever speaks truth to power gets their head cut off. Um, and that obviously hasn't happened. Now, I, I've, from anecdotally, I've actually heard that Director Haspel has done a pretty decent job about keeping the CIA out of um, the crosshairs of and the ire of the of the of Donald Trump specifically, uh, I've heard it described by people as the uh, as an eye of Sauron presidency, where as long as the eye doesn't focus yeah. on you too directly, this is this is very this is a very ungenerous analogy, of course, but as long as there's not direct focus on you, that you, that you're doing pretty okay. So she has she has helped the uh, the hobbits stay hidden. I'm guessing is the the interesting thing is that uh, reportedly the whistleblower has that has set off this whole thing. Uh, is a CIA employee. I don't know who it is, but that's what the press has actually mentioned uh, over and over again. And yet, uh, and obviously that that is the the idée fixe of the of the Trump, of President Trump and all of his all of his uh, people. That said, when it comes to things like Syria, when you have things with Iraq and ISIS and so forth, you don't really hear about the, the agency being robustly criticized for uh, their behavior, specifically by the Trump, by Donald Trump and others. Now, um, where a lot of this, what a lot of his ire comes from is, is Congress and um, uh, specifically the House of Representatives. And you see uh, people being criticized in the FBI and so forth, which is blows my mind that the, the president routinely trashes uh, the men and women of the FBI uh, who, are, who are trying very hard to keep this country safe and secure for a variety of reasons. And... Just just looking through the just looking through the press, the CIA kind of has, so far under Haspel's uh, leadership, has really sort of skirted that that problem. So, I don't know what's happening behind closed doors. Uh, people have s- commented in the press about how she's using her judo-like powers to manipulate the. Pr- I mean, come on, she's a she she and and the, all the people underneath her. By the way. Uh, from what I've actually heard is that the top three people at the agency now are all women. Um, these are competent, 
longtime government officials, and so they know what to do. And my experience, actually, at the agency has been, and I worked on Iraq uh, during the war, was that we were actually surprisingly insulated from political interference. Uh, this is during the Bush era. That's somewhat comforting as a just as a citizen. I mean, I, I, not exactly happy with how it's turned out since then. I mean, not, not that it's been an amazing, but it is somewhat comforting to know that there is a, a buffer between the people who are gathering the intelligence for the end and then, the, you know, putting it out there and then, you know, kind of the whims of, of the voter. Right. And and listen, I wasn't part of the uh, the run up to the Iraq war, so I can't comment on that. I can merely say that my during my time and I worked on some very hairy issues, I never got pushback from my supervisors, uh, from uh, our decision makers, this is including George Bush. Dick Cheney, uh, all these, all these uh, people, I never received anything that suggested that I changed my analysis, my bottom line analysis, to fit some sort of political need, ever. Maybe other people have different uh, uh, experiences, but I, I, cont- I, I personally um, uh, felt that, that everything was done by the books. Let me, let me talk about one thing that's not done by the books, and I'll get back to Haspel. Uh, the CIA director, one of the things that, that you mentioned in your piece uh, about a year and a half ago when she was uh, at that point still yet to be nominated but being discussed to be nominated, uh, something that had come up was the the possibility, her, her background, her connection with potential black site tortures, uh, that it was compromising. I, I don't want to discuss with you the veracity of that because I don't, I don't feel like it's uh, it's necessarily fruitful. Let's talk about this in terms of the current commander-in-chief. The president has made it absolutely clear from the campaign trail to on Twitter hours ago that he is absolutely fine with war crimes. He is not just fine with them. He's excited about them. He is enthusiastic about them. He would like to do them. And that there is a block of voters in this democracy who are also fine with committing war crimes, whether it's from a military standpoint or an intelligence gathering standpoint or whatever. And so I wonder about what that does when that is in the political water with as much strength as the president puts behind it, how that affects military or more germane to your background and experience intelligence gathering. So I've, I've been thinking about this. Uh, I, I don't know what, what Trump is really thinking, but I think what Trump is thinking is he's calling for unrestricted warfare. Doesn't matter what you do, uh, everything is on the table, do what you gotta do, and and when you frame it in that very simplistic sort of way, then you can, then it makes a little, uh, then you can say, oh, of course we can kill the families of people accused of terrorism. Of course we can bomb cultural sites in a country that we're not at war with, because it's, everything is, everything is on the table. Now, what we've learned over the last 200 years is that that kind of behavior is what monsters do and people who behave in, in certain ways. And so, for example, we know that the Russian government and the Russian military bombs hospitals uh, throughout Syria. It's, it's, very w- it's, it's quite well known, and, and they'll wait till the people come uh, and they'll bomb it again. Uh, I don't think the United States should bomb hospitals, especially civilian hospitals, for no particular reason. Um, the Saudis are bombing water treatment facilities in Yemen. 
and by doing so, and Yemen is uh, the, what, if not the poorest, one of the poorest uh, countries in the Middle East. By doing so, you contaminate water supplies, and you create uh, an epi- You can create cholera, and you can do all kinds of bad things. You also deny water to hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people. I don't think the United States should do that. And so, uh, when you have people who have a very simplistic way of waging war, and we've developed a very sophisticated law of armed conflict uh, over the last century or so, uh, we we should not. Uh, it, it really undermines the basic premise of American values. So, do we torture and execute prisoners of war? And the answer is absolutely not. Does that mean that the Germans or the Japanese or whoever didn't do that? And the answer is yes, they did, but they're not us. And so our values are what makes us strong. When you undermine those values and you believe in unrestricted warfare, then that's a real problem. I know that folks in the agency, especially after 9-11, certain things were happening. Certain actions were taken and certain um, decisions were made with regard to uh, brutal interrogations and, uh, and black sites and so forth. The agency went through an excruciating time. Um, Gina Haspel and, and, and everybody I know went through an excruciating time as we try to figure out what was the best thing to do. And it was, um, uh, and nobody I know wants to go back to that era. Do we want to go back to that era? And the answer is, I, I cannot believe we do. But let me push you on this. The president, his core of supporters, and a number of people alongside him in Congress who don't seem to be pushing too hard against this idea that we would change the ROE, the rules of engagement, that we would, uh, you know, do all these things. No, I haven't seen, you know, January is a pretty quiet month in Congress, uh, but I haven't seen a lot of congressional Republicans, for example, say, well, actually, these are war crimes that the president's talking about. We're not seeing that pushback. So what I'm saying is we're in a democracy there's a group of people who disagree fundamentally that those values that you described, uh, what happens if 50% plus one, what if that is who we are? What if that becomes who we are? Because that's what the administration is pushing for. It's, it's saying that we're weak unless we become that. And it's calling out, and it's going to use it as, an, as a reelection strategy because you know that this year that has just begun is going to end with the president saying that the Democrat who's facing him, whoever it might be, is weak because he or she isn't going to commit war crimes to keep Americans safe. Let's just put the calendar ahead 10 months. You know that's going to be the argument. How do you square that with where we are right now, looking down the barrel of an escalating, even despite what Secretary Pompeo might be saying, an escalating situation with Iran. Well, that's the difficult part, is that I think a lot of the voters uh, who who make our decisions in our democracy haven't really thought these issues through. And so what we're really arguing over, and let me take off my national security hat, is that we're really arguing over the 15 to 20 percent of, uh, of voters who have not made up their minds in terms of the, president, uh, the presidential election in November. Uh, and there are also a number. All the other uh, House seats are up, and so are uh, a number of key Senate seats. The people who have not made a decision between Donald Trump and whoever the Democrat is probably hasn't really thought these issues through too well. 
And so you have the people who support the president, who will support the president for a variety of ideological and financial reasons. I don't know whether you can actually capture those individuals. And then you have the on the other side, the, the, whoever supports the Democrats, are going to, they're going to take 40% plus. And so you're really fighting over 20% of uh, individuals. Those individuals, I would believe, do not have a sophisticated understanding of the laws of armed conflict, about rules of engagement. Um, I doubt they've never, I doubt they've, the people who are undecided have never even heard of Qasem Soleimani until a couple of days ago. And even then, they probably wouldn't even know who this person is or what the IRGC is, the Quds Force. Um, and so the American, you know, the, the man in the field, uh, the DOD, uh, folks in the intelligence community, FBI and so forth, they have to, these are professionals who deal with these issues all the time. Um, and one deals with a lot of ethical issues, ethical gray points. Uh, and that's why we, at least in this country, we have a system of laws, system of guidelines. We're putting them under a lot of stress right now. Um, but so far, I believe, we haven't tipped over into committing war crimes and, and getting away with it on a grand scale. It happens individually, don't get me wrong. Um, and that is the nature of conflict. Uh, and war is a brutal, terrible, terrible thing. But uh, once we get to a place where we are willing to routinely bomb hospitals like the Russians do or execute prisoners of war, that's a very dark place. And I, I hope we don't get there. Any, I hope we don't get there ever. It's not a hopeful place to end, but it feels like there's there's really not. And and what scares me, Aki, and, and what you know, you've described, this, this middle segment of the voting population and I feel like you're absolutely right that many of them haven't heard about these these nuanced things. What concerns me is that if they haven't, and they're presented with a simple argument versus a nuanced one, there might be a simple decision made. And that's the concern that I think a lot of us have going into November. But I, I'm, I'm going to ask you, when you see this situation, my last question for you, Aki Peretz, is we we see this situation ratcheting up the president has not made it any easier with his rhetoric both uh verbally and uh on twitter what what is hopeful and what would you say people should look to in terms of whether they're getting uh information or 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 hope if they're seeking either of those out in the next few days where should people uh, where should people turn other than uh some kind of uh i don't know some kind of you know dog photos on the internet uh yeah go to your crank uncle on facebook and see what he has to say <laughs> uh well one of the things is um a healthy democracy is an informed electorate and this this country is has so many smart thoughtful people and interesting nuanced takes on things and so one one a couple of things I would say is that if you're concerned about your media diet getting involved in disinformation and so forth, and you've heard about this, and we didn't really talk about uh, that that whole issue, which is, uh, I think, uh, quite interesting, um, one of the things you have to do is diversify your media diet. For your for your your mom and pop who watch Fox News on repeat, and I've got a neighbor here who every time I walk past with my dog, I can see Fox News on. I, instead of taking them on, why don't you say? I'm glad you're watching Fox News. Why don't you consider what about these other places and and talk to them and and talk to the people who actually are are gettable and um, and some listen honestly some people are not gettable and that's okay that's just the nature of the world and that's the case then you gotta then you gotta out organize them as much as you can and we still live in a democracy 
and I would hope that those of you who are, are voters in swing states think very long and hard about the way you want our country to go in the next four years. Changing hearts and minds, or winning hearts and minds, I guess. Uh, that always works. That always works. Hearts and minds. Hearts and minds. We, I see, by the way, right behind you, you have a folded up Mission Accomplished banner. I see it's, it's really, no. Um, Aki, I, I really appreciate the time, and you said informed democracy is a healthy democracy, making us a little bit more informed with this conversation. I appreciate it. Aki Peretz is a former CIA counterterrorism analyst. I know that at some point in the near future, you've got another book coming out called Disruption. When is that coming out? Uh, it's coming out late 2020. It's about the greatest terrorist attack that never happened. So the one that uh, Donald Trump just prevented, or? <laughs> uh, no, no, not quite yet. No, no, it's the reason why you can't take liquids onto planes, and the fact that you have to pay twenty-five bucks to put you, uh, to put your stuff into uh, the hold. That's very well. I, I I look forward to reading that and having more conversations. We will definitely need to have at least one more. You mentioned disinformation, but in an election where we know that there is quite a bit more coming from. A uh, number of countries, including Russia, that uh, is just trying to uh, trying to influence our democracy. I'm sure this will not be the last time. I hope this is not the last time you and I get to speak in this cycle. Aki Peretz, again, thank you very much for spending some time with me at the table. Thank you very much.